thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, Pastor Josh explains that the grace that Christ brought is of greater magnitude than the devastation that Adam brought. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Are You an Adam or Christ? Part 2. Romans chapter 5, uh, continuing to study through verses 12 to 21. So we'll give you a chance to turn there, find your place, then we'll read it and pray. Uh, one thing to pass along to you next Sunday, we'll uh, celebrate, observe the Lord's Supper once again as a church family. So please be uh, prayerfully examining and confessing sin this week as we lead up to that day. Romans 5, 12 to 21. Let's read together. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Merciful Father, God, we come to you and ask for the mercy that right now you will give us help Father, thank you for the time of worship we've had already, the singing of hymns, your truths being taught in that way, the time of fellowship, praying, giving. Now we come to, oh God, what we understand to be the highest time of our worship. God, we submit ourselves to you and pray, speak, oh Lord. You've given us your word. Father, you bring us to know you through your word. And so God, I pray that as we study here, Father, we will come to know your truths, understand your ways, your will, your character, your purposes, and as we do, O oh God, that you bring about all of the transformation, all the transformation to be like you that we need and to come to know you. So, O oh Lord, we pray that worship will happen now, Father, that the human temptation of zoning out or 
thinking about other things or even just thinking we already know all these things. Father, that we won't succumb to this. Pray that worship will happen, O God, in both the telling and the hearing, the preaching and receiving, O God. Give me help to do what I need to do. Give all of us grace, O God, that we will hear and come to understand. So, O Lord, accomplish your purposes to your ends in your glory. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. The Israelites had recently come out of the wilderness, crossed the Jordan, and God had given them victory in really spectacular fashion at the city of Jericho. After the battle at Jericho, which humanly speaking seemed impossible, the Israelites were finally, finally at a place that there was widespread trust in the Lord. The people of Israel genuinely believed that so long as the Lord is for us, so long as the Lord is accomplishing his purposes, there really is no army we cannot beat. And so whenever they scouted the next little bitty city in order to take, a little city by the name of Ai, A-I, they thought, this pathetic little place, we don't even need half the troops we used at Jericho. We'll be home by lunch. This is nothing. So the troops got together. They marched against I, and they lost. They were defeated. The people were absolutely baffled. There was the murmurs of things like, I thought God said he was for us. He told us, he told us we were going to win. Joshua falls on his face before the Lord and cries out, Lord, I, I don't understand. You said you were going to be with us. You said you were going to give us the victory. We just came out of Deuteronomy. We heard all the sermons of Moses telling us that the Lord's going to drive out these nations. What gives? The Lord replied to Joshua, there's sin in the camp. Someone has violated the ban. Uh, the Lord had instituted a, a ban that when they came into the land, God wasn't bringing them in there to get rich. He wasn't bringing them in there to, to plunder their enemies. And he put certain things and certain places under ban that at Jericho, when they saw uh, bars of gold and such, they weren't to take them. They were just to let it sit in the rubble. But there was someone who had violated the ban. It was a man named Achan. Achan had been one of the soldiers there at Jericho and in the midst of all of the victory that was going on, he runs past and sees gold and silver laying on the ground and he coveted it. Started to make those justifications. Well, there's no sense in just letting it go to waste. He may have even told himself, I'll use it for good things. And so he gathered it up brought it into the tent with his family's knowledge and buried it there in the tent. But when Achan was discovered, they asked the Lord this question, what should we do about him? The answer was, now, we talked last week about certain parts of the Bible that uh, various cultures and the Western minds don't care for. Let me give you another one. The answer was that Achan and his family were to be put to death. 
the entire family. Now, I believe his family was complicit in this, that they, though they weren't the ones who took the things under the ban, they knew what he had done and did nothing about it. And so in a passive kind of way, there was participation in it. But one way or the other, this principle remains. Achan representing his family brought devastation to everyone attached to him, his family, and then even defeat in the nation at large. This is the principle that we've seen Romans 5 show us. This principle exists in the world, and even if you don't like the Bible, still you cannot deny this principle is in the world. Oftentimes there are heads and representatives who uh, act on behalf of everyone who is attached to them. What scripture's been showing us is that Adam... The first man created by God, your great, 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 add some more greats, grandpa, his action of bringing sin into this world has brought devastation on everyone attached to him. You inherited a sin nature. You were born into a world that is not neutral. It's under the curse. Death is coming to you. In fact, death has already found you. The truest definition of what death is, spiritual death to be separated from God and then marching your way towards a day where you are cast into the place of eternal death, separated from life and blessing from God, that is yours on your own. And it's all come to you because of Adam. But the greatest news of history is the message that the Bible calls the gospel. That God decided not to leave all of mankind there. That God set about a design in order to save some, all who will come to him through his son, through faith in his son. God has made a way for you to leave the scenario of being attached to Adam and then to join yourself to a new head, a new representative. And in Christ, there is no longer the spiritual death. There is no longer the fate of misery and doom that is there, but instead grace abounding, life eternal, the kindness of God in the age to come, all of the splendor that the glorious God has designed for his people. All of this is in this message the Bible calls the gospel. And so if you are here with us and you have not yet turned to Christ, if you're not yet a Christian or don't really know what all of this means, one thing to understand at the very outset is before the Bible gives you any other instruction, before it ever tells you to go be good, it tells you right here, this is your greatest need. Your greatest need is to come and be made right with God. And that is possible only through his son by turning from rebellion, turning from running your own life and trusting in Christ. But for us Christians, if you're in this room and you have turned to Christ, part of what we need to see is this. We will not understand the depths of the gospel unless we understand these truths right here about what it means to be attached to Adam or attached to Christ. 
God wants to bring us to a place where we know him and know what he's done, know who he is, know his truths. We're not able to worship rightly until we come to know the depths of the gospel. And so here's, here's the, the kind of the other part of the introductory word that I give to you. This passage is hard. It is complex. It is hard to understand. Like you got to read it 10 times through just to kind of track what's, what's the thought process here. It's also hard in the sense that there are truths here that we may not like initially. It's hard. Someone could ask the question, well, why do, why do we need this? This is, this is for theologians. This is for those fountain pen using barrel chested theologians, those bearded guys who sit around and read books all the time. That's not me. Well, if you are a Christian, it does help to be a bearded barrel chested theologian, of course. But if you are a Christian, then God calls you to understand. God calls you to go to the depths. There's no place of the Bible where we say, well, you know, I'm not a professional Christian. So this, is, this isn't for me. If you are in Christ, you're called to go to the depths. Here's a little insight and secret. There are no professional Christians, okay? We're all struggling sinners on our way, trying to grow in Christ. If you are here, you know Christ. He wants you to know this passage, even though it's hard. So reject the temptation that Satan might even be stirring in your mind right right now to check out for the next 90 minutes while we're here studying. Just kidding. This won't be 90. God calls us to lean in. And another part of this this is, is this right here. This is not one of those passages that has a now go home and do this, this, and this kind of passage. There are many places of the Bible that don't have a go home and do this kind of application. The application is Christian, know these things, understand these things, meditate on these things, and then respond to these things. There is a level of joy that we are capable of having in understanding the depths of these things that we will miss, that we will not come to if we don't go deep in these kinds of things. So we're going we're gonna to struggle to work our way through this passage right here And we are in what I think is the most difficult three verses of this difficult passage. So I told you last week at the introduction, four points here, four points that are here. We looked at number one, sin and death from Adam, and we saw five truths, five sub points in verses 12 to 14. This week we're ready for verses 15 to 17. It's point number two, and it is Adam and Christ contrasted. Now, verses 18 and 19, which we will not get to today, are Adam and Christ compared. So if if you remember back to your English and literature days, you may have had to write compare and contrast papers, those sorts of things. To compare is to look at the similarities. To contrast is to look at the differences. So this week we have Adam and Christ contrasted. And we'll, we'll really look at what that means here. So, so here we go with point number two, Adam and Christ contrasted. The overall passage is showing that God ordained history so that Adam would be a type or a picture or a foreshadow of Christ. And we considered last Sunday some of the ways that that's the case. Things like 
Adam was the representative head and his actions affected everyone attached to him. In the same way, God has designed Jesus to be the representative head and his actions, his life, his work of the cross, his resurrection affect everyone who is attached to him. You might think of it as you belong to someone. Is it Adam or is it Christ? You, you hang from someone Is it Adam or is it Christ? It's the overall theme of the passage. There is, here's a a helpful word, I think. There's correlation between Adam and Christ. But these middle verses, verses 15 to 17, are kind of saying this. Adam was a type of Christ and there is correlation, but not, they're not identical. There's correlation between them, but there's not correlation to every detail or to every degree. These verses, 15 to 17, show here are ways that Adam was not like Christ. Here are ways that what has happened do not exactly correlate. Let me see if I can use some examples here. So in verses 18 and 19, it's going to be Adam and Christ compared So meaning what Adam did exactly correlates with what Jesus did. So so as an example, Adam brought death. Here's a direct correlation. Adam brought death. Jesus brought life. You see that? They're exact opposites. That's what's going to happen in verses 18 and 19. But what's happening in 15, 16, and 17 is it's going to say this. Adam brought this thing, but Jesus brought a situation that is Greater, So it's not the exact correlation or the exact opposite. What Jesus brought is greater. Here's here's an example. We're going to get there. Verse 17 is going to say, Adam brought a situation where death reigned. Jesus brought a situation, we might expect him to say, where life reigned. But that's not what he says in verse 17. Look at it. Jesus brought a situation where his people reigned. His people reign in life. And so, so you kind of see some of what's happening here. There's correlation, but it is not to exact detail or degree. Another way of saying it would be this. Adam brought devastation. Adam's sin brought devastation. Adam brought a situation that's like negative 10. Jesus brought a situation that's not positive 10. It's positive a billion. See in this? It's, there's a correlation, but what Christ has brought is greater because the grace, because the grace that God is giving to his justified people is so big. So, so that's what's highlighted in verses 15 to 17. In, in a bit, kind of as we come to the end, I'm going to show you three sub points. There's just 15, 16 to 17. Each verse has a sub point, but there's a lot we need to talk about before we even get there that will kind of help us see the overall points that are there. Let me point out two details from the text that will help us understand the subpoints, the truths when we get there. So here's the first detail. Notice the phrase much more that's used in the passage in, in 15 and in 17. I think verse 16 has the meaning of much more, just the language is not used there. So if you remember, we saw back when we started chapter five that there are four times in this chapter that the phrase much more is used. And it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. That if this is true right here, well, then much more 
God is doing something even bigger that is there. So here's how it's used in this passage. The effect of Adam was absolutely devastating, bringing sin and condemnation. But the grace of God that is given in the redemption of Christ is is greater than the effect and the power of sin. Um, Look at verse 15 again. Just try to see the way the, the, the language is used here. For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So much more, Adam brought this, Jesus brought something greater. Look at verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Adam brought something bad. Jesus brings something that is incredible. The point is sin is devastating. And listen, you're never gonna understand reality. And you're never going to understand God and you're never going to understand the Bible until it sinks in and you feel deeply to the core of you that sin really is devastating. The worst thing to ever happen to you is not health problems, money problems, or family problems. The worst thing about you is your sin. The worst thing that has ever come to your life is what you have inherited from Adam. Sin is absolutely devastating. But what Christ has brought not only redeems you out of that, but brings you to a plane where the degree exceeds the awfulness of what Adam brought I think another way, another way to say it, and I think that this is a conclusion we can draw, and I would think of this from places like Ephesians 1, hell will be awful, but heaven will be greater than the awfulness of hell. You, you, if, if, if on a level of joy we called hell a negative 50, it's not just that the coming age in the kingdom of God is going to be a positive 50, No, it's going to be positive billions that are there. The grace is greater than the effect of Adam. That is part of what is being highlighted in these verses. You you contrast something in order to highlight the differences. And the differences that exist in what Christ has brought are magnified so that there's a spotlight put on them so as to say, Christian, look at this. Look at the grace of Christ. So that's the first thing to notice in the text, the much more. Here's the second detail in the text. Notice how many times the word grace is used in the passage. And not only the word grace, but also other ways of saying it, okay? Because there are more ways to say something than just with the word. Every time that the passage uses the free gift, that's referring to, to the grace of God. So so look through the text here and just look at all the places because I do want it to kind of sink in. In verse 15, you notice the description of the free gift. So that's not the word grace, but it is what's meant there. The free gift, you can't pay for it, can't earn it, can't buy it. Free gift of God by his mercy, by his grace. The free gift of justification through faith in Christ. Verse 15, you continue. It refers to the grace of God 
and the grace by the one man, Jesus Christ. So that's the Father's grace and Jesus the Son's grace. Notice also the language in verse 15. What is this grace doing? I love this. Notice the, the very strong, beautiful word. Grace is abounding. It's abounding. Christian, grace is not being measured out to you by God in teaspoons. He's not, he's not looking at his cup to be like, all right, just, just a little bit. It's not what he's doing. What is grace doing? It's abounding. It's, it's flowing. It's being poured out. If you keep going, notice verse 16. The free gift is referred to again. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the, more, the one, much more, those who receive, and then look at this phrase, the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. There's that, there's that talk of abundance again. And then it's followed by the, the gift of righteousness. Remember that what it is to be justified is that you are not righteous. But God has designed a way for him to give you a righteousness that is not your own. If you're going to have eternal life, you got to be righteous. Well, guess what? You're not. You're a sinner and you're doomed. If God left you to yourself, you would have nothing. The grace of God is that he designed a way to give you a, a gift, a package, and the gift is righteousness. Before God legally in Christ, you are righteous. That's justification. Sins parted, pardoned right with God. So understand that every time this passage is talking about the gift of righteousness, that's, that's what it's describing. That's what it's referring to. So if you keep continuing on, look at verse 18. Once again, grace isn't named, but it's described in God bringing this justification. Verse 19, same kind of thing. Grace isn't named, but it's describing the gift that is there. But look how the passage finishes up in 20 and 21. God gave the law so that sin would actually multiply. Lord willing, that's part of what we'll study next week. But look at the rest. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's that language, grace abounding. What is being highlighted here is the never-ending, free-flowing, never-ceasing nature of God's grace. He's pouring out on us in Christ. There is a theme here. Grace abounds and grace reigns. If you want to understand Christianity, then you're going to have to understand this. If you reject Christ, you will get nothing unfair, but you will get the justice that your sins deserve. But in Christ, by responding to the gospel, by coming to him and faith and repentance in Christ, there is grace abounding and grace reigns. Grace doesn't just exist in small measures. Grace reigns, always flowing. As the more we grow in Christ, the more we come to understand our need of grace. The more we grow in Christ, the more of a miracle we understand it was that first moment that God forgave us. You know, before we came to Christ, we weren't amazed at the grace of God. Before we came to Christ, when we were unconverted, we just figured, we just assumed we were right with God. We were going to heaven. But why did we assume that? It was because we thought of sin as nothing. Sin's no big deal. 
It's just a little mistake. And hey, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. And in the end, God's just going to say, oh, I love you anyway. But then we read the scriptures and we saw that sin is absolutely devastating. All it took was one sin to bring about this crack house of a world. One sin and the ruin, the destruction, the devastation, the famine, the poverty, the misery, the rape, the murder, the war. One sin brought this mess. One sin. Adam and Eve were kicked out of paradise and the gate was barred and guarded. One sin. If we ever get to thinking of sin as light, remember two things. Remember Christ on the cross and what it took to pay for sins. And remember one sin is all it took to bring this chaos and this mess. Sin is devastating. You don't comprehend reality if you don't feel the depth of that. Sin is devastating. But in Christ, grace abounds and grace reigns. Understand that whenever we talk about God's grace, when we say that God's grace has saved us from the fate that we deserve, understand that just God feeling gracious would not have been enough. God's grace is not simply him deciding not to send us to hell. God will never do anything unrighteous. God will never do anything that defies and breaks justice. The grace of God is that he designed a way that while righteousness and justice were upheld, he made a way to still redeem us. So when we talk about the grace of God, we are talking about legal and forensic technical things of how Jesus upheld righteousness in order to die for us, in order to bring a way for us to be made right with God. But we can sum all that up by saying his grace coming to us and his grace abounding us, abounding to us. You Christian, grace is everywhere that you turn. Your life is filled with grace. Grace flooded you when you turned to Christ. But we also feel this more, don't we? The more we grow in Christ, the more aware of our sin we become. And the more we're just like, why does God put up with me? And grace comes every single day. It's kind of a regular thing is Folks turn to Christ and they get a year or two in, they come and have a talk with their pastor and like, pastor, I'm more sinful now than I was before I was a Christian. And it's like, okay, well, we need to have a little conversation about that because if it's actually the case, there's some concern. Usually it's not. Usually it's that you're more aware of it than you ever used to be. Your foul profanity never used to bother you. And now it does. And that's a good thing. But you're becoming more and more aware of your need of grace every day and every moment, every moment. And Christian grace abounds. The amount of grace that it took for God to redeem us is greater than you and I will comprehend here on this earth. But let me tell you this, the more you come to understand the depth and the bigger you come to see that grace, the more worship you will have, the more glorying in Christ and the more obedience and service and sacrifice you're going to want to give to your King for what he has done. But grace abounds. And that is what is being highlighted in this text. This text is heavy on condemnation, but it's because you don't understand grace unless you understand sin 
and what it has brought to us. The more we understand sin, the more we'll understand the magnitude of grace that it took to save us. That's what's being highlighted here in the indirect correlations and the contrast. So with all of that, now let's see the truths and the subpoints that are here. So letter A, first subpoint. If you're taking notes, I've got these kind of in a quick little, in a little sentence here. So here's, here's the sentence summing up verse 15. By Adam's transgression, the many get death. By Christ's work, the many get grace abounding. By Adam's transgression, the many get death. By Christ's work, the many get grace abounding. I know we've read it several times, but this is complicated thing. So look at it again. Let's read verse 15 again. My great goal is that we understand it, not necessarily that it be entertaining. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Now let me pause there for just another quick thing that we need to see in the text so that we don't have misunderstandings. When the text refers to the many, who's that? Who's the many? What may be an even harder question is if you, if you glance down to verse 18, you got a similar kind of thing that's used there. It refers to all men. Who did Adam's transgression affect? All men. Who did Jesus's justification affect? All men. Do you see a potential misunderstanding here? The potential misunderstanding is that someone could say, well, hey, it sounds to me like everybody saved. Jesus's justification comes to all men. So universalism, universalism is the belief that everybody is going to heaven. Okay. But you know, approximately 10 minutes of Bible reading shows you that that's not the case. Jesus said the way is broad that leads to devastation, destruction, misery, and hell. There are many who find it. This very book of Romans has clearly shown that's not the case. case. All who reject Christ are under condemnation. So we know that's what it's saying. So if that's the case, then why is it worded in this way? The many and the all. Well, a little bit of first century context will help us. It's something we've already seen in Romans. If you remember, one of the most widely believed errors by the Jewish folks in the first century. We've got our own widely believed errors, okay, about the Bible that's here. They had them too. One of the most widely believed errors was that only Jews could be saved. Now, that's an absurd belief, but America has a lot of absurd beliefs that are widely held to as well. It was a widely held belief. That's why you see Jesus addressing it all the time. That's why the book of Romans spends so much time on the fact that the gospel goes to to all people, groups, and things. It's just a, a very big theme that's there. So we see that there. And so when we see the scripture coming and showing that the salvation that Jesus brings is coming to all men, there was nobody in the first century who thought, oh, that's for every single soul. No, it was very clearly understood was meant here. The gospel is not just for Jews. Salvation is not just for this one people group. It's for every people group, every tribe, every color, every language, every group that is out there. And so, Look for that as you read through the New Testament. That language is very common. 
And so similarly, when verse 15 talks about the many, the many are those who are attached to the head. The many in Christ, all of those who are attached, the many in Adam, all of those who are attached. So here's what it says. Those who are attached to Adam have condemnation, but the many who are attached to Christ have something else. Okay, so what is the something else? By Adam's transgression, the many died. For all those attached to Christ, grace abounds. So I just want to make sure we're following this. The direct correlation would be to say, through Adam, the many died. Direct correlation would be through Jesus, the many live. But what is said is actually better. To say that the many live, that's true. And verse 18 is going to say that. But what 15 says is something even better. Through Adam, the many died. Through Christ, grace abounds, which is way better than saying just life. What you get is better than just life. You get grace abounding. So that's what's emphasized. Now, letter B, the second one. By Adam's one transgression, one transgression judgment and condemnation came by Christ's work of atoning for many transgressions. There's your, there's your indirect correlation transgressions. The free gift of justification came. Let me say it again in case you're wanting to write it down by Adam's one transgression, judgment and condemnation came by Christ's work of atoning for many transgressions, the free gift of justification came. So the indirect correlation is between the one and the many. Look at verse 16 again and see if you see it. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. It is again a kind of much more point. Adam plunged men into sin, judgment, and therefore condemnation by one thing. But then Jesus took, what kind of number could we use here? What kind of number would we use? Billions? Trillions? Of all of the individual sins of those that he would save? He took every single individual sin of those who would respond to the gospel and he died for them. He went to the cross and he was counted as if he were the committer of those things. He was counted as if he were the offender of all of those multitudes. I don't know what kind of number to put to that. We'll just say multitudes. The text uses the word many. Now, one little thing, maybe a parenthesis here that you might hear as I'm describing this is, um, I, I believe that the scripture shows that who Jesus died for were the people that the father had given him to redeem. That's biblical language. The father gave to Jesus, the elect gave to him a people to go and redeem. I believe that the scripture shows that that is specifically who Jesus died for. Um, there's a little bit of controversy and debate over this kind of thing of did Jesus die for the sins of every single soul or did he specifically purchase a people? 
I believe scripture shows that if Jesus died for the sins of every single soul of all of history, then everyone would be saved because he just redeemed all souls. He specifically died for those who are in him. If you have questions on that, come and talk. If you disagree with that, that's the kind of thing we can still have fellowship on. That's like third and fourth tier kinds of stuff that is there. There should not be arguing or fighting over those kinds of things. But I am showing you, I believe the scripture shows this. And so if you think about it, Jesus took the many transgressions. Jesus died for the sins of the Old Testament believers who were saved on credit. Jesus took the sins of Abraham and Moses and David, but he also took the sins of those in the future who would not yet live like you and me and atoned for every one of them was counted as the transgressor. Adam's one sin and Jesus took the many transgressions. And then here's the last one, letter C. By Adam's transgression, death reigned. By Christ's work, his people reign. By Adam's transgression, death reigned. By Christ's work, his people reign. Look at verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those, so it's a people, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So what is highlighted is what reigns. The world that Adam created is a world where death reigns. Death is the cruel despot, the oppressive tyrant bringing savage cruelty to all who are under his power. But in Christ, something different reigns. And it's not enough to just say that life reigns. That's true, but there's something better. Christian, in Christ, you will reign. In other words, the living you will have in the age to come is not just existing and it's not just life like you're used to now with all your body aches and frustrations and turmoil and stress and chaos. It is a life that is so full and vibrant and joyful that it is reigning. Your sons and daughters of the sovereign in just an incredible mystery that just always sounds wrong to say. I just feel like I'm blaspheming when I say it, but the Bible says it. We reign with Christ, sons and daughters of God. It is not only that life reigns, it is that the believer reigns in Christ. You will reign in life and your life comes these little phrases in the Bible are so important. You see that there at the end of 17, through the one, Jesus Christ. You will reign, you will reign in life, but like the branch cannot exist apart from the vine, the flow of life, so your life comes through the source, Jesus Christ. Here's the end. Christian, know these things. Contemplate these things. Know them deeply and respond to them rightly. And listen, we don't, we don't comprehend them. If the response is not a soaring encouragement, then we've not yet got it. The light bulb hasn't yet clicked on. 
If the scripture says that in Adam death reigned, but in Christ we reign in life, and that doesn't bring soaring encouragement, we need to go take an hour walk and let it sink in as we meditate on it. Let it bring gratitude. Let them sink into the depths of the heart. Spend more time with these truths and glorying in what Christ has accomplished. In Adam all die. In Christ there is life and grace abounding. But if you're not in Christ... If you've not yet responded to the gospel, if you've not yet turned to Christ to be saved, and maybe even all of those phrases I just used still sound weird and mysterious to you if you're not familiar with them, then listen very carefully. God is not first and foremost calling you to go be a good boy. God's instruction to you right now is to not make the decision, I'm I'm really going to try harder and get more religious. That's not what he's calling you to right now. Those things will come later. The very first thing he is calling to you is to leave the crowd and the group where you are right now and to come be brought into a new people. I know it sounds weird to say, leave Adam and come to Christ, but the reality is, if you have not yet turned to Christ to be saved, you're standing in the midst of the crowd that is resisting God, that is opposing him. Right now, you're not submitting to him. To submit to him means that you're coming to him. You must leave this and come to a new place, a new people, a new kingdom. Cross from death into life. Cross from curse into grace abounding. And it comes by responding to the message of the gospel, responding to Christ in faith and repentance. Which another way to say that is to trust in Christ, to believe, and then to have the resolve in my heart. I'm no longer going to live where I run my show. I'm turning to him. Jesus, I'm, I'm yours. And you submit yourself beneath his authority. Not to become perfect, that'll come later in glory, but now to decide my life is in his hands and I am now on a new direction of following him. The first thing you must understand is that you need forgiveness before you can ever talk about being good and growing. You need Christ. You need salvation. And the Bible tells you how to do that. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Even where you sit right now, even in silence in your heart, you can call out to God and beg him to save you. But you do need to understand this. If you just sit there and argue with what I'm saying, all I'm trying to say is what the Bible says if you sit there and in your mind you're saying, I don't care what this guy says, I'm a good, I'm a good person, I, I don't need this, that's resisting God. You're denying what he's calling you to. Submit yourselves and turn to Christ. You don't need anybody's help to do that. All you need is Jesus, but sometimes it's helpful to talk to somebody. So if you'd like somebody to talk to, come find me. Let me talk with you, pray with you, answer questions but respond to Christ. Let me pray for us. 
Lord, we thank you for the grace that abounds in, in Christ. And Lord, I just want to ask for the application here that we will come to deeply understand these things. And in knowing them, we will be brought to a greater place of worship, gratitude, joy, love for you, obedience, and tenacity of service than we've ever had before from seeing all that you've shown us, oh God, in your grace. Lord, please bless us to honor you. We pray, God, as we're about to spend some time in fellowship and sharing a meal together, thank you for this kind gift. Thank you for chances to feast together, to really enjoy and celebrate. Good food is yours. Laughter is yours. You created joy. Our enemy tries to distort it, but it all belongs to you. I pray that we will laugh and converse and fellowship and enjoy as sons and daughters of the kingdom. Bless us in that time, O oh God. Please bless our conversations to be edifying to one another, encouraging to one another. Build us up, O oh God. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, Are You an Adam or Christ? Part 2. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.